I want you to open your Bible to the book of Ezra. It's to the left side of the Psalms. If you're not familiar with the books, go past Job and go past Esther, and you'll run right into it after you say hello to Nehemiah on the way back. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. I was reading this story, and there's a message here. There's a message for all of us. Whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever occupation you have, or if you're without an occupation, there's a message for all Christians here. Now, Ezra has been given permission to go back to what we call Israel. The temple is in ruins. The walls are torn down around Jerusalem. It's lying in ruins, and the people that are there have no interest in all of that, the rude, difficult people. Because, you know, when they drove the Jews out of Israel, they sent a bunch of captives from other lands there to occupy it. And they weren't Israelites, so they didn't care. And the place is in weeds and bushes. And back in Babylon, as the time has come to 70 years or about up, there's a cry in the hearts of those that God puts his hand upon to want to go back and fix all of that. Ezra, a great man, was one of them. So he goes to the ruler, and his name was Artaxerxes in chapter 7, and he gave him permission to go back. And he said, not only can you go back, but take with you everybody who wants to go, those who are willing to go back. Not all of them were. After 70 years, the kids were, you know, grandfathers now, and they had their houses built because God told them in Jeremiah to build your houses. Don't try to leave. You're going to be there 70 years. So they got settled in there, and a lot of them just stayed, but a lot of them wanted to come back because God moves upon people's hearts to do his will. And so Artaxerxes said, you may go back. Gave him a bunch of gold, gave him a bunch of silver, things to pay the workers, and he wanted to build the house of God because in so many words, he said, I don't want to be God's enemies and bring trouble on my kingdom. So you go back and you do for your God what you want to do and you build back his temple. And so Ezra began to leave and said, well, we need more ministers. So they went back and found more of the priests and ministers to go back because you need God in whatever you're doing. You need to have that influence. So he knew that. So they got quite a company of people going back. It's quite a journey. It's a long way. Journey is sort of like life. You sort of know where you're going, if Israel was heaven, but you're not exactly sure which road and which route, and that mountain pass down by the river, the lake, or through this valley or that hill. Not really sure which one of those trails to take in this journey. So Ezra, knowing that we want to do everything right. This is God's work. This is very serious because we got our children here with us. And we know that between Babylon or Iraq today and Israel where we are, we know that there are a lot of bandits and thieves along the way. People who rob and steal. We see it in the news all the time. And so all of those people are waiting for caravans to come through so they can rob them. So there was a natural fear that these people had or were aware of, of how dangerous and difficult the journey was. So Ezra said, the first thing we're going to do, and let's read at verse 21. 
Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before the Lord to seek of him a right way for us. Now, that's the title of our message today, God's Right Way. Listen, folks, as Christians, you can choose any way to life you want to live. You can choose to have, be, or do whatever you want to do. You can let your dream be your way. But the only right way in life is the way that God wants. Now, whether or not you find that out, whether or not you really are interested in that, that's your business. But Ezra knew that while we're able to get there some way or another, there is a way that is the right way. Let's find out what it is. So the first thing he did was he got his group together and he said, we're going to afflict our souls here, which is another way of saying, we're not going to do anything right now. We're not going to do anything but inquire of God. We're not going to eat. We're just going to seek God. Let's find out. Let's get some information from God, some direction that God gives. However he's going to give it, but we believe that he'll give it to us in such a way that we will know that God gave it. And so, how are we going to know which way is God's way? Well, let's seek him. Let's begin with fasting. Now, fasting is not a dieting program. I think a lot of people think, well, if we fast, we'll lose weight. That's not the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting was simply a denial of anything that you're doing in order to find out what God wants you to do. It's seeking God. You fast. So you can attend to whatever God has for you, to seek after God. We call it afflicting the soul. It's used many times in the Bible. For example, remember the story of Jehoshaphat? When he heard about the army that was coming up to the south, down near the cliffs, but the Dead Sea in that area, they were coming up there, a million soldiers, three armies. And he was made aware of how large the army was and how well equipped that army was and He didn't know we could handle that or not. But you know what the first thing he did? He gathered all of his people together, just like Ezra did. He got his people together, and they fasted. He declared a fast. And and 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3 said, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and declared a fast throughout all of Judah. Everybody, this is so important that if we don't do this, we will all die. We must find out from God what we should do. Should we run? The Bible says in some cases you will flee to another city. Should we flee? Should we run? Should we fight? We don't know what to do, Lord. That's what Jehoshaphat said. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And before we make any kind of decision that may or may not work, we want to know what the right decision is. So they begin to fast. How did they know? Well, a man in the congregation, in that great assembly, a man named Jehaziel, he prophesied. Must have had a good, strong voice for that many people to hear him. But he prophesied, and he told the people, you don't need to fight in this battle. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. Tomorrow go down to meet them. They come up from the cliff of Ziz, and you meet them there and see the salvation of God, the saving way of God, the way that God saves his people, what he will do for you. Just do that. You don't need to fight. 
And can you imagine? That was God's direction. How do they know? It was a man that said it. How do we know he's the only voice in this camp? Let's wait for somebody else to prophesy. Let's get two out of three or something. But they knew the man. They knew the man's life. He was probably a proven vessel, never been wrong, didn't miss it. And when he said this is what to do, they were willing to take their wives and their children and walk down and face an armed enemy with nothing and watch God cause them to slay each other all day long before him. All of them died, and they all killed each other. That's amazing. But it was God's right way. The only story in the Bible in which Israel won a great battle without a fight. Only one. Israel at this time was the only nation that has ever been known that had Bible studies being taught the word and all that didn't even guard their borders anymore. They just got together and they were taught and the priests taught them and they learned the ways of God and faith comes by hearing. So it was probably natural for them to say, well, he did it here and he did it there. We've learned all these things. He'll do it for us. And they walked down, they won the battle. But before they did anything, they stood still and they fasted and they sought God. We're in such a hurry in this life, we sometimes are frantic. Fear is bred into us by life and the media and statistics. There's this inbred, ingrained fear in American Christians that it might not work. Who knows? And yet God said there is a right way, and he'll show it to us. He'll show you a right way in your life about what he wants you to do. Even Nineveh, an unsaved place. Remember when Jonah was sent to Nineveh? Even Nineveh, when they heard his message, they fasted. I mean, it was like, oh, God, we're all going to die. Lord, uh, Lord, what can we do? And they repented. It's amazing. Just amazing. You see, turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. You want to put your finger in Ezra. We'll be back. Jeremiah chapter 10. Look at verse 23. This is a fact and a truth that God made us with a need. Jeremiah 10, he said, verse 22, he said, Oh, Lord, I know that the way of a man is not in himself. Now, stop. Are you willing to admit that? You're in a world of opportunity. You're in a world of confusion. You're in a world of crime and darkness. You want to go the right way. You're a Christian. You want to say the right thing. You want to marry the right boy or girl. You want to get the right kind of employment in your life. You want to learn the right trade. You want to live in the right place and do the right things. You want everything to work for you because that's what peace is all about. But... Well, he goes on to say in verse 22, he said, It is not in a man that walks to direct his steps. Now, what do you think of that? When you read that, what do you think? Does he say that we as human beings are made to need help? That if left alone, we'll self-destruct. We'll make wrong decisions. We'll go the wrong way. We'll do the wrong thing because we'll follow our feelings. We'll follow our passions. We'll follow our lust. Or our sinfulness will mislead us and we'll wind up, when it's over, missing the mark. 
God didn't put any man on this earth to always know what to do. We need something outside of ourselves. It is not within me to know how to live. It must be something outside of me. Can I find it? Yes. Where is it? It's God. Now, how do I find God? And then you know the story. And once you find him, you learn that it's Christian sitting in this room. He doesn't speak audibly to you. You don't hear a voice in the room. I guess you do. Nobody's ever testified to that. It's not like some piece of paper fell down on the floor that God wrote on. He can write. He wrote the Ten Commandments. He wrote on the wall in the book of Daniel. He could do that. He can make it that clear. But he does it. He makes it so we have to seek. Like Ezra said, we have to pay a price to find out. What should I do? Where should I go? What am I supposed to do? In a study of Christian ethics, the leading question to promote the study is, what should a man do? With regard to, in the study of ethics, is a lot of different subjects. What should we do with regard to war, death, race relations, the church, marriage? What should a Christian do? Because most of them don't know. But he said, it is not within a man, not within anybody in this room that walks to know how to live your life. Somebody needs to tell you how to do it. Because if they don't, or you don't want to hear it, or find out what it is, you'll live it on your own terms and you'll die. You'll convince yourself you're all right because that's the nature of sin. But God will disapprove of your life because if we don't live on his terms, guess what? If you don't live on his terms, you miss the whole mark. It's all gone. God didn't put anybody in this room on this earth try to figure out how to live right. God put us all on this earth, got our attention and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. As they said in the book of Acts, in him we live and what? Move, go, and have our existence. He is my great need in life. With all the education you think you need to make it in life, nothing supersedes your need to hear from God. Nothing. To have God in the way that he does speak to you in a way that you're convinced that it's God. We don't have to run around with troubled souls the rest of our life wondering what we ought to do. There's a right way. There's a way that God will show us, and it's a way that he's going to show us, if we will spend time with him. How else can I know what to do if God doesn't direct my steps? Could you be a preacher without being guided into a pulpit? Of course you could. And I remember a story of a, it's a truth, man, back where I grew up. He was a doctor. His parents wanted him to be a doctor. He didn't want to be a doctor, Dr. Patterson. He wanted to be a farmer, raise cows. But he became a preacher, he became a doctor. I don't think he was a good one. But it just goes to show you with enough effort and trying real hard, you can do a lot of things that the public approves of. Oh, boy, look at you. But if you're not where God wants you, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, you're messed up. It won't work. 
Why? Because what I'm talking about is you're not at peace with what you're doing. There's not a contentment. Some of the poorest people in the world who are in the middle of God's will and know it are happy as they can be. People in Hollywood are committing suicide would trade places with any of them because they have peace. And it is not within a man who walks to direct his steps. He needs something outside of himself. And it's not found in a book. It's not found in somebody's college book or somebody's other books. It's found in God. If you want to know what God wants you to do, you'll have to seek him. Ezra, if you want to know how to get back to Israel, where the temple is, without the loss of any life and all your children being okay, nobody dying along the way, make this a successful journey, 100% successful. You need God to show you exactly how to do it. He obviously has stirred you up to go. You just don't know exactly how to go, but God will show you how to go. He will lead you there. He'll take you back there. It'll be exactly the way it ought to be. And again, with us, how should we live? What should you be doing with your life? You young folks that are full of vim and vigor, what are you supposed to do with your life? Are you sure? Do you suppose God knows what you should do with your life? Do you suppose that he knows? He does know, doesn't he? Well, wouldn't it be to your advantage to find out what he wants you to do and resign yourself and be willing to do that? How can we find out? Well, doesn't he speak to us through his word? He does. I hope as we study the word, we become word conscious. Be word of God minded. So that our mind thinks, you know, when somebody says something about God, there's a, something that the Holy Spirit uses that you put in your heart. He brings it up and informs you of the rightness or wrongness of something. Isn't it possible that if the Word of God is abiding in you, it becomes a judge of what you're hearing and what you're thinking? We use the word conscious a lot, too. You know, when my conscience is informed, when my mind is being renewed, new things replace old things. And when somebody says something that's not right, boom, something that you put in you rises up and says, that's not right. That'll protect you and keep you from taking a wrong turn in life and following a group when you know the group is wrong. You start singing, though none go with me, still I will follow. Would you turn to Isaiah 55? You can let go of Jeremiah for right now, but Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah said, Great peace have they who love thy law. Now listen to this. Great peace have they who love thy law. How does that work like that? We all have a Bible. We call that the law. I mean, the, the word, the revelation of God. We all have it. Let me ask you a question. Does everybody love it? Does everybody long to hear it? Well, they don't read it very much. They got one at home. It gets seldom read. So there's something lacking of love and need, N-E-E-D, need. 
Let me ask you another question while it's good and quiet. Do we need to hear the word of the Lord? How much do we need to hear it? Do we only need to hear it on a Sunday morning as a text? Or maybe on a Wednesday night as a text or turn to two or three verses in a sermon and read it again. Is that the extent of our need? Don't answer me. Our need. Something we cherish, love, uh, desire, have affection for, enjoy. Uh, It obviously doesn't have that with most of the Christians I've ever known because other than a church day or a church night, it is seldom ever read. You know that's true. And if the truth is known, embarrassingly, because we don't read much in the Bible, we don't spend a whole lot of time during the week actually praying. We mumble a prayer driving down the road, but as far as praying, we don't do much of that. We don't read much. We don't pray much. We just sort of get along. And really, deep in your heart, you hope you're going the right direction in life. But something about that disturbs you because it's not giving you any peace. See, the Bible says great peace. Have those people who love thy law. Great peace means serenity. Peace means lack of agitation of your mind. You're not in turmoil. You're not in conflict. You're not stressed out or worrying about tomorrow or yesterday or what's going to happen next and all. Something that you have discovered and found and laid hold of delivers you from all of that. Something really has, really has delivered a lot of people from all their fears, all their anxieties. They're at peace. Have you turned to Isaiah 55? 55, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please. It'll prosper thing where to I send it. Now, you and I both know that God sent his word to give direction and confirmation. It's right if the Bible says it's right. What you heard is right if it agrees with the Bible. But the Bible is the focus of what's right and not right. So God gives us his word. And he said, my word that goes forth out of my mouth will not return unto me, boy. It shall accomplish, it shall prosper in whatever I send it to do. From the healing of your body to the deliverance of your sins, to the restructuring of your life, the reorienting of your life, giving you everything that God wants you to have. My word will describe that, show it to you, and you can believe that because faith comes by hearing. Now, when that happens, when there is a connection between your heart and God's word, and you begin to be moved by it or motivated by it or impressed or affected by that word and you find yourself going oh yeah i see it praise god whether you repent oh god we say praise god and you're joyful the word of god is designed to affect us it is not within us to know how to walk but the word of god is like a light it will begin to illumine you it'll begin to open your eyes you begin to see that's what the word does god gives a spirit of wisdom and and what Revelation and the knowledge of him, Ephesians 1. 
That's the whole thing of God. He sends his word to those who look for it, those who want it. Some don't want it, they sleep on. But there are those who come to hear it. And they listen. And sometimes it wounds, it's like a two-edged sword. And sometimes it's like salve, it heals. But it does something. And as always, that something is to bring you into a better place with God. Now, if you don't love it, it's an option. Well, I'm not ready for that. That's what you say. Well, I know I should, but, you know, I, I don't know. Man, I, I, I just, I was, I be, I be, I be, and the dabbing and the do boys. And, I, you know, I, when you see your need, like that song, I need you, Lord. I need you every hour. Not right now when I'm hurting and I'm tore up. I just made a terrible decision and ruined somebody's life. I, I mean, yes, I do. I need you now because I am, I'm a mess. But, Lord, I need you just to make a way in my life to change the course of my life so that I can do something right, do something good. So you listen, and God's word becomes a message. It's like the Spirit of God begins to tattoo on your heart these words. And maybe you're listening and you're caring and God does something. And you want to know more than that. He only gives you a little bit. And you say, give me some more. And he said, you're going to have to look for some more. You're going to have to take your time, your free time. You're going to have to come apart. You're going to have to show me how interested you are by seeking on your own. You need to find out for yourself. Do you want to go the right way or not? This is part of the plan. And God brings us back to that place where you spend time with him, that secret place of the Most High. Your eyes begin to be opened, and you begin to see things a little better. There are certain decisions you've got to make. I've got to do that, and you've got to do this. Every time you make a decision, you think, oh, man. But peace comes. Peace and in spite of your loss or in spite of that, or in spite of I'm going to jail, I've made my peace with God. I can do this. For the first time in my life, I've been honest with the Lord. And the price I'm going to pay, I, I'm willing to praise God. They went to the stake like that in Nero's garden. They were burning Christians. They lit up the whole hillside with burning flesh. Of people who've had a smile, and they couldn't burn a smile off their faces because they knew in whom they had believed. They knew where they were going. You kill me now, I'll be with God in a few seconds. Because when I die, I know who I'll meet. I'm not afraid of dying anymore. I found peace with God. I'm not struggling. I'm not striving. I have found peace. Now, all of that is because of the influence of the word by the Holy Spirit in your life. God makes us like that. But now notice the 12th verse. When that begins to happen, here's what it says. We sing this sometimes in a song. And they shall go out with what? Joy. Who? These people that have received the word in, in verse 11? You mean the word makes you like this? What if you're broke? We shall go out with 
but I'm broke. No, it didn't say anything about the condition you got yourself into doing it your way. You found out God's way and you believe he's going to take care of it. They shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. They don't have much. The world feels sorry for us. Look what we got. What they can't find. What they can't buy. Which is not within them to ever have peace. You cannot get peace from anybody but God. You can go to all the analysts you want to, all the psychologists you want to go to. You can be hung by your heels and analyzed upside down with your brain crooked and still get it wrong. The only right way to get your thinking straight is to have your mind renewed, and only God can do that. And he only does it by his word, which is the only way that we are washed and cleansed and renewed. The washing of water by the word. That's what separates us. But that, when that happens to folks in the church, then folks in the church have peace. You're not ratty-tatting on that computer, but you're not yakking on that phone. Because you have peace. When you have peace, you don't do that. When you have peace, you have solutions. You can quote the Bible, God said. When you don't have peace, you talk about your problems. What you're going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get by. People that have no peace constantly talk about themselves. I think they're trying to convince themselves they're all right. But have no peace. Turmoil. Agitated. Difficult. So forth. Wouldn't you young folks like to have peace about who you're going to marry? Please say yes. Either that or promise me this morning, no more marriage. Nobody else is going to marry anymore. We're done marrying. Thank you. Praise God. Okay. Nobody agreed to that. Would you like to marry the right one? How do you know the one you're about to marry if you're not married yet? How do you know that's the right one? How many men or women have found a life of agony later on? Oh, man. He was not as all like she thought he was going to be. And she, what all that baggage she brought in the marriage, she had it locked up in a locker somewhere. And when we got married, she unlocked the whole thing and brought it all out. I couldn't deal with it. Couldn't handle that mouth of hers or that mouth of his. It's like a plague. It just grows. Wouldn't you like to know that who you married, you're going to love the rest of your life? You can love them for 50-some years. Would you like that? Is it possible? Well, aren't there struggles in marriage? <laughs> oh, boy, I've had a lot. Yes, there are. There are lots of struggles in marriage. <laughs> oh, but obviously, standing here today, there's none that haven't been fixed. You see, I don't know how to handle some things. I haven't always known what to do when I discover something about myself. I don't want to, how can I have, what am I going to do? It is not within me to know what to do. So what do I do? I need thee, oh, I need thee. So I go to the Lord. You know, if you never prayed much, you don't know how to spend much time with the Lord. You just know how to ask a lot of questions and then leave. You don't know how to wait. But when it becomes desperate, you learn how to wait. God can arrange desperation. 
He wants us to come to him and spend time with him because one thing he wants us to know that this is the way that I want you to go. This is the way I want you to walk in this way. And I'm going to give you peace. Peace. Would you like to know that if you're going to college, that the subject matter you're studying, your major, what you're going to pursue in life as work or job, wouldn't you like to know that that's God-ordained? You all better know that. That I am in the middle of God's will when I'm studying. If you are, then learn something. Don't daydream. When I went to college, boys, when I went to college, I had one desire to play basketball. I could care less about any class I took. I didn't go to half of them, but it didn't matter. I had a scholarship. I had it made. Basketball player, you know. I was about as useless a human being as I've ever known. Nature's waste. Spending money, doing things, you know, school's money. No effort, no interest. And wound up being a school teacher. And I remember going to Piketon, Ohio. You know, the armpit of Ohio, as we used to call it. <laughs> and here I am going, you know, kind of like, I'm out here in a school situation, going to be a shop teacher. I had to get a couple of manuals. I'll just share this. I had to get a couple of the manuals out to learn how to turn some of those machines on back there. I'm the shop teacher. Well, didn't you learn all that? I learned nothing in college. I made a lamp one time, had a little deer on it. I did that. What else did I do? I have no idea. I had architectural drawing. I drew a couple of drawings because you can take one that's already drawn, put it over a glass plate, and then tape your paper right over top of it and trace it. You can do that. I, that, that was pretty easy. It just took time to do it, you know. But I learned a lot. Can you imagine sending your kid down to my class and there's a good chance he'll get his hand cut off before the school year's <laughs> over? But that was the days I began to realize how juvenile, immature, and foolish I was. Just juvenile. <laughs> Goofy. Life was all about having fun, being stupid. Hey, I'm stupid, I win. And then one day, I just, when I got out of there and started growing up, then Bonnie and I, not too terribly long after that, we got saved. And life changed. Then I began to see that if God had not interfered in my life, I was just another disaster in history that was going to happen. I was just another goofy, foolish person that was going to die in his sins and never know what heaven was, thinking he was cool, when your whole life is a mental misery. You're never happy. In your mind, you're never good enough. You know your sins have found you out, and you're just... Oh, you're temperamental and unsettled and not at peace. I've known a lot of kids like that when I taught school. They were never at peace. They tried to act like they had peace, but they didn't. They tried to act happy, but they weren't. They married. Maybe I'll get happy to get married. And after they're married for a couple years, they divorce. Or he's going to get a job, and he takes a job. And he doesn't like the job. Learns from a couple of his friends how to smoke dope. 
You didn't learn on a job, you learned it in college. Next thing you know, his life is a mess. There's not a class you can take to get out of that mess. But before all that happened to me, you know, you come to the Lord and you get saved and suddenly there's a whole new life that you've got to discover. Still discovering it, but what a life. Somebody loves me. In spite of me, in spite of how I was, somebody loves me. Not just my wife, not just you, but something outside of myself. Something beyond me. And when he begins to disclose or reveal himself to me, back to where I wanted to go a while ago, it begins to whet your appetite to learn of who he is. Just like Jesus said, learn of me. Learn of me. You'll find out how to live your life if you learn of Jesus. You'll find out you really can turn the other cheek without feeling like you're a weakling. You really will find that a soft answer will turn away wrath. You don't have to fight through life. You don't have to be a bad man tough. You don't have to be, in fact, you can be just the opposite of that and be at peace with it. Be at peace. You don't have to be like anybody. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous, accumulate all this world's goods. Because today's message was supposed to have been about that. You can gain this whole stinking and stupid world. Gain it all. Have songs written about you. Have books written about how marvelous a person you are. And when it's over, you didn't realize it when you were going to church, but when your life is over, now you have to face the author of life who gave you your soul. And you spent your whole time doing it your way and not his. You had no interest in him. Explained away why you didn't believe what he said. Now you face him. And what a tragedy Jesus said. To gain the whole world. To be tough and pretty and beautiful and handsome and rich and debonair. Have it your way. And then at the end, face God. Like you said, you brought nothing into this world. You could take nothing out of it. And all the Bill Gates types in the world, the billionaires in this world who die without Christ, they burn in the same place, the beggars and the nameless thousands of annihilated people in other countries will spend. What a fool. And we only escape this morning. We only escape because of loving God. At some time in history, reached out and said, Hamilton, <laughs> just as I am, here I came. Brought me to him. He said, your life is so messed up that I'm going to have to sign three angels to you. <laughs> Not really. But God began his work. And the one thing that has emerged in the last 46 years is the need for this word. I have found by just reading the Bible in the morning. Started Genesis back when I'm halfway through now, but just reading the Bible. Read it slow. Word for word. It's amazing how many times God speaks to the least of us. The dumbest of us. The smartest of us. How he often speaks a word in season to you from the Old Testament. While you read, just reading it. You're just reading, and there's words that God causes to 
jump off the page. They become words of life. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. You learn that. Now, they shall go out with joy, and they shall be led forth with peace and life. What does that trail through life? The mountains and the hills shall break forth. God will be good to you in life. He'll bring you through. And even if you go to the stake and die, there will be something in you that God has put there that it's not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Because when you die here, you live there. I don't even know that they even tasted of death. I think they just shut their eyes and the body burned and they were with God in heaven. Peace. Not afraid of the enemy. The terror, I'm not afraid. The diseases and the bugs and the germs, I'm not afraid. How can you say that? Because there's something greater than all of life's troubles, and that's God's solutions, if you will just believe them. And so, back to our story. Would you go back to Ezra 8 now? I hope your finger was still there. Ezra said in verse 22, I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because, why? Because I'd already told him, God is big enough, we don't need man's help. Is that pretty close probably to what he meant? Well, I don't want you to agree with it. I just want you to think about it. I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us along the way because of all the bandits and the enemies and the trouble that we're going to face, the enemy along the way. He said, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. Is that still true? Amen. Well, then I can say to you that all the things that man offers to help man through life, God has something better. I'm not against Anything in the medical profession, I am all for what God offers instead. Because the world cannot trust God, can they? They don't believe that God's word is medicine to our flesh. They don't believe that. They can read that. They can say that. They can even preach about that. But they don't believe that. They don't believe that my God shall supply all your need. They have to go to a bank. That's not the right way, but that's the way people go. How much has that just depressed people later on? Man, look at all. I got. It's hard to find a great measure of peace in all of that. But see, we think we need that, so we do it that way. That's not necessarily the way God said to do it. And here we are struggling. It's not God's fault. God hadn't laid back of his word. We just laid back from God. He has a better way. Well, how am I going to have all that? Who said you need to have all that? Man wants to have the world. He doesn't mind the mental anguish he goes through. He just wants it. But yet God comes on and he says, I have a better way. I have a better way for all of you. It doesn't take treasure to be happy and satisfied and content in this life. 
It just takes the knowledge of God. To know in whom I have believed and to be persuaded that he is able to keep all that I have committed unto him against that day. So in Romans 8 says, if God is for me, who could be against me? Here was the writer of that, Paul. He was in prison. He had no nice home. He had no nice donkey to ride around on. He didn't have a radio-tired chariot to ride into the mall in. He had nothing. He was in a jail cell. He had lost everything. He was once a blue blood. He said, I count it all joy for the loss of all things. That was his lot in life. When God knocked him off of that horse, he's told Ananias to tell him what great things he will suffer for the Lord's sake. And while he was suffering, he was rejoicing because he was going the right direction. He was in God's will. It wasn't a chore. He was beaten, battered, shipwrecked, lowered over walls, treated bad, run out of town, missed the line, and he probably killed with joy. We can't imagine having joy in this life without having toys. And yet, nothing can give you the kind of joy that God gives. We have happiness because of what happens, but God gives joy because joy is spiritual in nature. We have joy because we know in whom we have believed. Jesus said, the joy that I have, I give to you. Didn't he say that? That's why we are strong and we don't cave in and, oh, give me the pressure. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The Lord. God has no worries. God is at peace. Therefore, he's a joyful God. And we can't imagine being joyful with all the turmoil that's in the world. You can't fix the turmoil that's in the world. People in other countries centuries ago, their ancestors made bad choices, and they're paying for it. It's not your fault. It's not necessarily the youngster's fault, but these are generational curses that have followed people all through life. You think America's safe? We're not safe either. But while there is time and while there is still peace in this country, that political peace, we, listen to me this morning, we need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have right now to get ourselves as close to God as we can. Because the day is coming. There is a day of judgment coming in this world. We're already seeing some of it. But in Ezra's faith in verse 22, Ezra had faith in, in God. He had faith in God because he was a man of the word. And he said, I believe that God will take care of me. Therefore, I do not need an army. I don't want your drugs. I just want you to know, King, we don't need anything from you. God will take care of us. What do you suppose the world thinks when you tell them that? We don't need all that stuff. God will take care of us. God will. We don't have to be worried about tomorrow. God is already there. We don't have to be worried about money and financing. God will supply all of our need. He'll give us peace. He'll take care of us from the arrow that flies by day, from the thing that stalks at night. He said he will give charge to his angels concerning you, and those angels will keep you in all your ways. Well, what do you need? What do you need beyond that? We don't need anything. We just don't believe that. We've read that. We've heard it for years and years. We just haven't believed it. 
We'd love to hear it, but when it comes down to that's all you got, it's pretty tough. But in verse 22, what did he say towards the end of it? He said, the hand of our God is upon us for good to all those what? Who seek him. All those who seek him. Now, what does seek mean? I know you're familiar with that word. To seek means that there's a desire to know something that only God can reveal. For a Christian, he said the hand of God is upon his people for good who seek him. Is that fair? Well, let me ask you a question. Does God qualify whom the hand of good is upon? Who's it on? Those that go to church? No. Those that memorize the Bible? No, he didn't say that. He said those that seek him. Those who inquire of him, seek after him, look after him, spend time with him, talk to him. And even sometimes when you're talking to him, you say, I wish you would talk back. And if God spoke out in a room when you were quiet in prayer, there'd be a new door in a wall there somewhere. We're not used to that, but it's that still, small whisper in your heart. Sometimes, in my experience with this area, sometimes it's just a little voice that says, everything will be all right. I've had that happen many times. When I hear that, everything will be all right. That's about all it says. Everything will be all right. I don't have to pray. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going. People are still disturbed and troubled. I know it's going to be all right. In what way will it be all right? I don't know. That's God's business. I just know from my side it's going to be all right. And I'm not going to fret about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to be in turmoil about it because God said it'll be all right. How do you know that? Because he spoke to me. Did you hear his voice? No, but I know what I heard over 40-some years. I've learned to listen to some things, and I know when he speaks, at least to me. I heard what he said. But seeking after God is one of those things in the Bible that, that God put great emphasis on. Those who became king, like David said to Asa, he said, the Lord is with you, Asa, while you're with him. Now listen, the Lord is with you while you be with him, and if you seek him, if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you don't see that need, he said, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Let me ask you a question. Is that fair? Well, if God said, if you seek me, you will find me, isn't that good? But he said also, but if you forsake me, you're not interested, then I won't be interested in you. Is that fair? It's a choice we can make. Or to Solomon. David said to his son Solomon, First Chronicles 29, he said, And thou, Solomon, my son, know the Lord God thy father. And serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But, listen, if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Now, how big a deal is it for God to draw a man to him to seek him? It's a big deal. 
you're not interested. Christian life's kind of dull, isn't it? I go to church all the time. I went there. I heard this and that. I didn't get much time. You know, I can imagine that. There's got to be more to it than just going to church. Your heart's got to get in this thing. He said, if you seek him, he will be found of you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And then there's one particular verse in the Bible. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Can you find Ecclesiastes? Sure you can. Right after Proverbs. You find it. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 7. What information is here? What wonderful information for us here. All of us. Especially you young folks. I want you all to read this. If you don't have a Bible, listen to this. Ecclesiastes 7.25. I applied my heart to know. Only you can do that. Nobody can do that for you. So as a choice, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom. What should I do? And the reason of things. And to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness that I see in the world. Lord, show me how bad it is. If you set yourself to seek and to search and to know and to understand why, just spending time with God to see the bigger picture so you can go, when you see God's plan, you go, oh, like in the book of Proverbs, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Know something, know what to do with something, and then see why. And you go, wow, now I see it. Now you're growing up. You have a depth in you now you didn't have before because God has expanded your understanding. And he said, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. Why? Why, Lord? And to know the wickedness of folly, of foolishness, being stupid, even the foolishness and madness. And Jeremiah said in that classic verse in Jeremiah 29, he said, you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isn't that wonderful? Because there's not a soul in this room now that's exempt, none of you. You, whoever you are, however interested you are, it's up to you. You shall find me, the one who does all these things I've been saying. You shall find me when you search for me with all your heart and with all your soul. Search means to long for, to inquire. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Didn't the psalmist say that? Teach me thy way, O Lord. How can I find out his way? He has to show me because it's not within a man that walks to know the way to go. But teach me, Lord. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. Why? That I may walk in in thy truth. But what if it costs you the world? I don't want the world. I have discovered the foolishness of folly and the madness and wickedness in this world. And what's happening to all these people who gain the world and lose their souls? They had it all and had nothing. And that poor beggar that laid at the gate of that man with sores on his body that had nothing. 
When he died, apparently he had his heart right with God, and he went to heaven. And that rich man said, what's he doing here? He paid a price you wouldn't. He didn't have anything to lose. He had nothing, <laughs> he had nothing to lose. You were afraid of losing everything. Oh, you build bigger barns, soul, take your ease, look what you've got now. You know what God said to that man? He said, thou fool. You've gained all of this. You're so proud of how well healed you are and how accomplished you are. People, you know, they admire you so much. Now you got nothing. You have nothing of God in your life. It's all about self. It's a tragedy for a man to lose his soul. To waste one life, we only get one. We don't even know when it's going to end. You know, I had a phone call this week. A dear friend of mine died. I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't expected up in Vermont. I think, boy, it, you know, for him, death is all right. He's still shouting. He shouted while he was here. He's still shouting. Boy, there's a lot of people that I'm afraid I know that if they suddenly died, I don't know how I'd feel. I don't know. I've been to too many funerals wondering that very question. Some funerals were easy, like Carrie's. That was easy. I know where she is. No question. But some, I don't know. You think all these 75, 80 years you lived in this world, and all the thousands of hours you had to live and all you have when you come to God is a 10 cent Sunday school class. What a wasted life. What a wasted life. But Jeremiah said, you shall seek me and you'll find me if and when you search for me with all your heart. You give it all you got. If you knew how close the finish line was, what would you do? The song said, you'd take a deep breath and pass out. <laughs> no, you'd take a deep breath and what? I could tell you today, if we don't know this, we'll never know, but if we could know that the world will end Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. That's when the Lord comes and or whatever. It's all going to stop. How would you live between now and Wednesday? Talk about Bible reading. Talk about meditating and searching the scriptures. We wouldn't even be able to get you on the phone because you're in that book. But there's no crash course, is there? Just a daily walk with thee. Isn't that a song that says that? You know what it is, Gus? Precious Jesus, hear my plea. You know that, don't you? Okay. Well, anyway. Let me close with this. When we get down to doing things right, shouldn't we want everything we do to be right? Turn to Colossians 3 so I can close. So we can find out the right way to go and have God's approval. If we have God's approval on what we're doing, are we doing something right? Of course we are. All right. Colossians 3.18. He said, wives, verse 18, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, what if we don't do that? What if a person does not do that? Are we going the wrong way there? You sure are. 
can there be any good come out of that? Well, that's not hard to answer. No. This is God's right way, isn't it? Folks, the Bible is full of verses like this. This is just a little passage. Wives, recognize your husband's role in the home and submit to it and honor him and quit being his problem. But he's not doing his job. You took a vow to love him, not to change him. That's God's business. You do your part, let God do his. We ain't going to to me. No, you know what? I'm sorry y'all ever got married. Because it ain't going to work because your heart's not right. Anyway, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. And don't be harsh and bitter. Don't make them pout. Well, she makes me bitter. Well, she might. That doesn't give you a license to make her bitter. Marriage is not getting even. Marriage is, is taking a vow that I will do this. When you stand up there and you take the vow, he says, I will love you. I will honor you. I submit to you. I will love you. I will take care of you and so forth. We're making a commitment to each other before God and these witnesses. That's a binding covenant. It's binding. You committed yourself. If we don't do that, how can we then in a family or even in the church with that, how can we be right? Are you hearing me? And he goes on to say, children, verse 20. Well, wish I had time with this. Children, obey your parents. Somebody will. Maybe one of these uh, UAC preachers will get it. Maybe they'll do that. You know what UAC means, don't you? Up and coming? Okay, anyway. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. Ooh. I would like to preach about Isaiah 3 now, about how it says children will behave themselves unseemly. They were trained to do that. They're being true to their nature. And they're ruining their home. They're ruining society. It's their parents' fault. Fathers, verse 21, do not fret and harass your children. Or you may make them sullen and morose. That's one translation that says that. And finally, what I want you to turn to, verse 23. If you want to do it right, whatever you do in word or deed, do it how? All right. That's a great judge of all the thoughts and intents of your heart. If you want to slap your wife, slap her in the name of Jesus. If you don't want to pay your bills, say, I refuse to pay these bills that I've committed myself to. In the name of Jesus, I will not pay them. I refuse to be on time. The meeting starts at 10 o'clock. I will not get there. I refuse to get there at the right time. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I choose to be late. In the name of Jesus, I choose to be argumentative and difficult and ornery. In the name of Jesus, I refuse to be teachable. How many of you know all that's wrong? And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. If you can't do it in Jesus' name, you shouldn't do it. How about some of that raunchy music people listen to? What about all this disgracefully... Henri 
unclean, foul music that people listen to. Can you listen to that in Jesus' name? What if I told you just back in history, in time, I'm not sure they're even here this moment, but got in somebody's car once, waiting on them, turned the radio on, and the music wasn't good. I don't think that's good. I don't. I'm not going to tear their radio up. It's not my radio. I'm not going to take their tape out and stomp it. It's not my tape. Back when they had tapes. I'm just saying that something has to transact as we close. Something has to transact between God and me. As I spend time with him and talk to him, something has to happen. He's got to change me to where, from now on, it's not my will, but thine be done. What do you want me to do with, with my life? What do you want me to preach on? What a struggle sometimes. What a struggle. What do you want me to, pre- what do you want me to say to her? What do I say here? Lord, what, what should I do about this? What should I say to my wife about this or that or to my children? Or what should I do about this? Wouldn't it be good to always know you're doing what God wants you to do? Amen. Well, you can. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I know that you are here this morning. I know that you are present with us. I know that your spirit takes words and make them to be understood the way you intended for them to be understood, not necessarily the way I said it, but you'll make them hear it right. I know you do that. So that it's not the preacher, Lord, it's, it's the work of the spirit. And I pray, Lord God, that everybody in this room this morning, those that watch it electronically, wherever, listen. I pray that everybody has been able to hear you say something to them about their life or about their direction, something that they need to give to you. And I thank you, Lord, that it's true. If we will listen to you and hear your voice and seek your face, You will give us peace about what we're doing and where we're going and about all of our decisions. What a wonderful life it is then, because it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, Lord. It just matters that we have heard from you. So I ask you to bless those that are listening here this morning. Everybody sitting here watching. I pray that nobody escapes the moment right now of making some quality decision with what they're going to do or start doing with their lives. I ask you to do that for our good and for the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.